2009, October 15. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 16, DNA and Heredity. So this is, uh, again, the continuation of our Astrobiology Week of Biology. So I, I don't think this lecture may be, in fact, more or less unique in the lectures. I could not find a place to slip in a gratuitous astronomy picture. So I think this will be 100% astronomy free for the most part. We've been looking all week at a very selective approach to, to biology, asking the questions of biology and functional biology that we can use to draw on for inferences about what we should be looking for in other worlds. Today we're going to go into probably the most detailed of the biochemistry uh, content of this class, talking about DNA and heredity. So basically today's lecture is going to be about DNA and RNA and their role in cell function, heredity, and evolution. So first of all, there's a couple of basic facts that sort of can get, get, get tied down right away. The first is that all life on Earth, everything that meets our definition of living, uses DNA to store and transmit cellular operating instructions for the or of organisms. So if you want to ask, how is it you make a bacterium and how does that bacterium function, it needs a set of operating instructions, how to make the proteins and enzymes and various pieces it needs to function. And it gets that information from the DNA. The structure of DNA is very special. It's a double helix polymer formed of sugar and phosphate backbone with four base pair molecules. That structure is what gives you an, a unique ability not only to code for information for construction of proteins and RNA, but also gives it the ability to replicate by having a du dual split structure, basically is the key to how this thing can actually make a copy of itself. We're going to look at how the, how the DNA codes information in what are called genes. Genes in the genome is the entire set of gene. A gene is a single functional unit of, of, of coding information for making proteins, for example, inside of a DNA. So we're going to look at what the ge genetic code is and see if there's any hints or clues that we might have in there for what we might look for, for example, for the origin of life on Earth and what we might think might be features we might look for if we find life elsewhere. We're also going to talk very briefly about the role of RNA, sort of the, the, the cousin of DNA. It's, very, it's different in its structure, but it plays an extremely essential role in the function of a cell. And RNA is also important to us. Later on, we talk about the origin of life on the Earth next week. Is RNA may have, in fact, been the first of the nucleic acids to form on Earth. We th there's a one hypothesis for the origin of life called RNA world. And this may have been the early precursor, at least for what became ultimately DNA. And finally, towards the end, the last part of the class, we want to talk about the subject of mutations, which are changes in the DNA instructions for cell function that turn out to be the molecular basis of evolution. You can go through all the natural history arguments that were used by people like Darwin and Wallace and all the other people to come up with a description for that in some kind of evolution of species must occur, but they couldn't tell you the mechanism. And the mechanism, in fact, turns out to rely on the molecular le level. Basically, evolution acts upon genes. Even though it appears in population, it acts primarily upon genes. And we'll look at some of the mechanism of that because, again, it has implications both for understanding the history of life on Earth and for understanding perhaps what some of the features might be generically of a living creature that we might imagine on other worlds. So we're going to be talking today about the nucleic acids, sort of the last molecular piece we need to talk about a complete organism function. Nucleic acids are extremely important because basically they're the basis of storage and transmission of heredity in cells. Pure and simple. This is the way in which cells pass the information on how to make copies of other cells down to each other. And what's unique about this and important about this is every single form of life uses DNA in some way or another. They all use it the same way and it's the same basic chemistry involved. What differs is the set of instructions. 
That's a really amazing fact when you think about it. The many billions of types of life forms on this planet use exactly the same basic four pieces to code up the information for how to make and operate that cell. And what makes for that diversity are all the different ways you can combine that information. There are no second paths that we have found, with maybe the exception of viruses, which are primarily RNA systems. But RNA can't self-replicate. Remember, a virus has to hijack the replication machinery of a normal cell in order to do its replication job. What it does is basically it dumps its RNA, which contains the instruction for how to make a virus into like a bacterium or a human eukaryotic cell, and then hijacks the DNA mechanism machinery, if you will, the biochemical machinery, to do its replication for it. So there's two basic nucleic acids that are going to be of interest to us. The first of these is the most famous DNA, which stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, which encodes the instructions for making proteins and for making RNA. RNA plays a very specific role in cell function, as we're going to see. DNA is represented in this little model here by, of course, the classic double helix. Basically has a phosphate sugar backbone here, and then there are four sets of base pair molecules, labeled over here on the, on the right-hand side of the screen. These are the nitrogenated bases that form the, basically the chemical codons that code the information inside of the uh, DNA. An RNA looks like a half a DNA superficially, but there are two important differences. It's not just simply one half of a DNA split off. Those two differences are as follows. First of all, the R in RNA stands for ribonucleic acid. The sugar backbone is actually made of a different sugar. It's made of, of ribonucleic acid rather than deoxyribonucleic acid. They have, they're very similar in their basic form, but they differ in very important ways. The second major difference is they share three of the base pair molecules with DNA, cytosine, guanine, and adenine. But instead of thymine, it uses a, a different version of guanine, of a, a related molecule called uracil, which is given the code name U. Now, if you look carefully, for those of you who can see this from the back of the room, uracil is pretty simple. It's simply a carbon and nitrogen aromatic ring here with some hydrogens and oxygens hanging off. Thymine is that same ring, but now instead of a hydrogen in this uh, kind of 10 o'clock position is this little CH3, which is methyl. So basically, thymine is a methylated uracil. So they are related, but they're very different in terms of what, how they perform within the, within the cells. I've said before, and I'll keep saying it again, what you want to understand about DNA is what it contains is the operating instructions. Not quite the blueprint, but the operating instructions for the function of the cell. It does contain all the information to build all the cells that are necessary for that organism. If it's a single-celled organism like a bacterium, then the DNA of the bacteria tells you how to make and build a functioning bacterial cell. If it's a multicellular organ, organism like a human being or, a, or even a small little colonies of, of you know, little tiny microscopic multicelled organisms, DNA is even more remarkable. It contains the complete instructions for every cell that goes into the organism. So if you're looking, at, for example, in a human, at a liver cell or a heart cell or a skin cell or a bone cell, the same DNA instructions are in every single one of those. What differs is which portions of that instruction set you express, to use the language of genetics, to make it a bone cell versus a nerve cell versus a liver cell, etc. So DNA contains a tremendous amount of information. In fact, all of the information it needs is coded inside this molecule. 
So let's take a little closer look at DNA. It's really amazing stuff. In fact, in many ways, I think I'm giving sh complete short shrift in this class to DNA. The more I read about this stuff, the more I'm just completely fascinated by it and understand now why a lot of my friends became biologists. It's partially because they're smart. This stuff is really hard. DNA is a long double helix structure, so shown over here on the left-hand side of the screen. The backbone, the two pairs of the backbones that make up the outer portion of the helix ladder is a sugar phosphate backbone in which the sugar is deoxyribose. And the whole system is held together by little phosphates in between. Inside of this are four molecules, which we've already mentioned, called the nucleobases, adenine, the thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And they come in pairs. Adenine and thymine always pair across the helix, and guanine and cytosine all pair across the helix. If you look very carefully here, you'll see that the pairing is this little dotted lines. Those are hydrogen bonds. And you'll notice that there has to be three hydrogen bonds in the guanine-cytosine pairing and two hydrogen bonds in the adenine-thymine pairing. The fact that there's two here and three there means that you can't have thymine grab onto a guanine and, vice, and other mixtures. You only get one combination, adenine and thymine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And these four base pairs together are what give you, if you will, the letters of the language of the, of the genetic material information coded inside of the DNA. Well, let's step back a little bit and just look at DNA as far as just as a big molecule. And it is one of the biggest molecules, single piece molecules that we know of. Here's actually an electron micrograph of a DNA molecule slightly wrapped up. So it shows you that these things are extremely large. Very large number of base pairs to code the information. To put you, give you some numbers, the human genome, the combination of genes that make up, the DNA that makes up a human being, contains three billion base pairs in the entire system spread across all the chromosomes that are inside of every single one of the cells in your body. To give you an idea of uh, the scale of the project necessary to map that genome, the Human Genome Project took 13 years and $1 billion to do the job. And we now have a complete map of a number of human DNA genomes. What we find is that these sequences of base pairs here all code for various cellular functions. They code for protein synthesis. Remember, proteins are the basic functional cell units, functional units of cells. Primarily, especially for things like uh, proteins that are used for structure, but more especially the proteins that are the enzymes. They're the catalysts for the biochemistry that goes on deep within cells. How you make the sequence of a protein, a protein is basically a long chain of amino acids strung together in what's called a peptide chain. So what the DNA codes in its language is the order of amino acids that will build a particular protein. And that can contain very, very large numbers of amino acids. So you have, a, even though we have only 22, or in, for human life, 20 basic amino acids that can be dealt with in most forms of life on Earth, there are many, many, many combinations of those things that can form up into the structural proteins and the functional proteins used in cells. They also play a role in synthesizing RNA. You can also build long strings of RNA off of a DNA. In fact, that's one of its primary functions in a cell. And the RNA is what then turns around becoming the important piece of protein synthesis within cells. And finally, there also seems to be a role, there are, there are other pieces of information on the DNA which are referred to as non-coding DNA. They don't code for specific amino acids. They don't code for specific protein sequences. But they do seem to play some role in the regulation of synthesis within cells. In fact, an interesting factoid, and again, I, I try to check these facts as best I can. So to the best of my ability, 
The current thinking is only about 5% of the human genome actually contains coding for functional protein synthesis. The other 95% is of unknown function or called non-coding function. Some of it may just be structure, just may be junk. Others of it may have function we still haven't begun to figure out. But we've only just sequenced it and only begun to study the, the vast amount of information in the human genome. Now the unit of a genome here is the gene. A gene is a particular length of DNA that codes for a very specific single cellular function. So for example, you might have a gene that codes for the creation of a particular protein that acts as an enzyme inside that cell. And, that, you know, and all these genes are now being mapped out. People are identifying them, identifying the proteins, and trying to learn what the function of those proteins or enzymes that are created are. So it's a great big area of, of research. And we're going to skip over all of it and just go for the big picture. So how does DNA get, do this, this trick? How does it do the language coding? Well, the answer is the language of DNA is written in the sequences of base pairs. Adenine and thymine form one particular pair, which are labeled A and T. Guanine and cytosine form the second pair with three hydrogen bonds that form the GC pair. The way you build the coding is you have along one spine, you might have A-C-T-G-D-T-T-T-A-T-T, a running line of these four letters. And each of those will be paired off against its partner across these base pairs. And it's those base pairs that form the basic coding unit of a DNA. So what do these base pairs code? Well, primarily what they code, as I've mentioned before, is they code the building of proteins. When you actually have a functional portion of a DNA, its job is to build up proteins. Proteins are just long chains of amino acids. So what happens is this. Basically, each group of three base pairs there's three, there's four letters. Three base pairs are needed for one of the coding words. So there are four to the third power, or four times four times four, or 64 possible combinations of those in little three-letter words. Those three-letter base, three base language words in 64 combinations, in their groups, each one codes for a different amino acid. Now, there turn out to be multiple codon, codons. For example, for some amino acids, there are multiple codons that actually produce the amino acid. And so you take this series of words and you put them in a line. And you recognize them by their three base pair wording, three base pair let, three, three letter base pairs, forms a word. You chain these words together and you find out which amino acid corresponds to each base pair. And then you chain them all together, and that then gives you the coding of the chain of amino acids that go into a particular protein. So it's just a set of instructions for how to make proteins. Well, that's sort of saying it's just a set of instructions. This set of instructions is capable of producing all the diversity of life we see on the planet. And if we look at the number of plausible combinations, that's an infinitesimal fraction of the number of plausible combinations. What's important to pull away from this is it is the common genetic language of all life on Earth. This means that as I look at different creatures and I take apart that organism's DNA codings, I can see the same codings appear in animal to animal, organism to organism. As two organisms are very close to each other on the phylogenetic tree, they will share a lot of the same codons. They'll share a lot of the same words in the language as those creatures move further apart. So for example, among two bacteria might be closely related, close on the phylogenetic tree, their genomes will be very, very close to each other, but differ in those ways that make it one type of bacteria versus another. The difference of cell function by changing that changes what it does, or changes how the cell is constructed. 
When you start doing the separations between the big groups, like bacteria and archaea, or between archaea and eukarya, like animals like us, we have very vast differences between bacteria and human being DNA. But there's a lot in common as well. And so what you expect is as you go back through the history of life and you find groups of life that arrange from came out of the same basic group of common ancestors and split off, you see the same words in the genetic code appear over and over again. So one way in which you can do this, you look in this language, is you can read it backwards, if you will, and try to figure out what are the most primitive sets of codons, what are the primitive, most primitive genes in the system that are common to nearly every form of life. You found a piece of the genetic coding of the original organism that was the common ancestor. And that's one of the things that people look for in trying to find the common ancestor of all life. To give you an analogy, let's say I was to describe a weekend I spent with someone where, okay, you know, my wife and I went out, went out canoeing on a weekend, nice sunny day, had a barbecue, sort of lazed around in the hammock, had a nice dessert of chocolate. You can talk about all the stuff we're doing. That sounds like a very banal sentence until you start pulling apart the words. Words like canoe and barbecue only entered the language because they're, in fact, Taino words they're, and Carib words. They're basically the words of the native peoples of the Caribbean area that didn't enter the European languages until after Columbus's discovery of America. Chocolate, tomatoes, all the bit of food words came in. Those are Aztec words. They came in, and those foods came into European usage through the Aztec contact in the 16th century. I use the word maybe barbecuing a hamburger. Okay, that's a 19th century concept. I could pull apart a narrative of someone's boring afternoon spent lazing around and probably be able to pin down what decade they were in to about 10 years. And if I throw in any slang, I could probably narrow it down even further. If I go back two or 300 or 400 years in European history, even to English speakers like to my ancestors who came from Ireland, I wouldn't find half the words that I'm using today. But I would find different sets of words that are in common because we all speak English or some variation on English. So coded in the human languages is the history of human civilization, human culture, and the contacts between them. Coded in the language of life is the history of all life on the planet. And what we're starting to do is learning how to read that. Okay, here's what some of this language looks like. Here's the dictionary for the language of life. Well, this is the basic dictionary. This gives you the word units. It doesn't tell you the grammar or how they're put together. These show the three-letter three, diff the, the three wordings. These are 64 different possibilities for the first base, second base, and third base over here, base pairs, how they pair up to make various um, amino acids. So, for example, I can pick the combination TTT, TTC, TTA, TTG. TTT, TTC are for phenylalanine. TTA, TTG are for forming leucine. But notice also CTT, CTC, CTA, CTG forms leucine as well. So that means if I really want to say this code word makes leucine, I really only seem to need CT. So some only code once. Things like methionine down here is just ATG, sometimes used as the start of word. Some codings don't actually code for any amino acids, but they say to the chemical reader, stop, you're at the end of a long sentence, if you will, of genetic information, end of gene, break off, start next gene. So all of these things usually come in pairs. Occasionally there's a couple here. Well, methionine is one of those that's only one. But they either come in groups of two or four. If they come in groups of four, there are only going to be a handful of those that exist. They all code on that first two, two letters. 
So this has got some interesting insights in here. Even though we can code up all of the 20 amino acids that we use in normal eukaryotic life by the 64 plausible base pairs, it's pretty clear that there's an older language buried in here. We can start seeing maybe, maybe pictures of the older language that current day DNA came from may have been two letter base pairs, which is four to the second or 16 possibilities, a much simpler creature. We don't know for sure that that's the case. We've never found such a creature because everything now uses three letter base pairs. But we may be seeing a hint in how the language is built up, how that, hist how that history occurred. Just like if you dig into language, you're going to find old French words and old Danish words, which have to do with things that happened in the English-speaking world a thousand years ago. Somewhere you ultimately get back to the most common snippets of language to the origins of life. And that's why this is so interesting from the point of view of the history of life on Earth. The thing that makes DNA really special, though, is its ability to replicate. Remember that the ability to reproduce, replication, was one of the keys to recognizing the difference between life and non-life. How does life go about this process of replicating a complete copy of all the functional units of itself? Well, the way it does that is the basic coding of that functional operating instructions is encoded in this double helix, which has this bipart structure. So the simple story that you all probably remember from, from high school biology is basically a DNA strand comes apart like a zipper. The two, base the two bases separate into two different strands and then various of these amino of the uh, base pairs floating about in the system pair up with their partners and slowly build up the complementary pairs that went into other half. If you split off, for example, across this CG base pair, the G goes with one strand, the C goes with the other. You pick up a C to complete the pair on the one side, a G to pick, complete the pair on the other. You've now got an exact copy of what used to be there. And so the whole thing basically unzips and then rewinds into two perfect copies of each other. Now that's the cartoon over here on the right. In reality, there is a surprising amount of molecular activity that goes on into this. There's one particular little molecular structure called... Uh, to, to, topoisomerase. Pfft, I'm glad I'm not a biologist. I can't pronounce half this stuff. This is the thing that's part of straightening out the helix. Another piece called a helicase is the thing that basically is the tongue that takes the zipper apart. So now we get these single-strand proteins coming out, binding various proteins here. I have a DNA primerase, which basically is starting to work here at the basic working structure of the two strands. And then it turns out because of differences of the geometry here, there are leading and lagging strands. But there are these two particular important things shown by the orange boxes. Those are the DNA polymerase. Those are the things that stitch together the new strands out of the two halves that came off the DNA. So you've got to look at a structure this, this complicated and see that how long does this take? The answer is to split apart the entire human genome only takes a few minutes and replicate a human genome takes only a couple minutes to replicate the whole three billion base pairs. So it's an amazingly efficient process. And it works with part of the various protein machinery within the cell. So the part of what the DNA also codes for is all the chemical pieces, if you will, that it needs to accomplish the replication. The result of this is because you're simply making, a, you can actually make a more or less perfect copy. Well, not exactly perfect, but very, very perfect. And it does it over and over and over again within every single cell that uses DNA. So the replication stage doesn't just happen anywhere it wants to. It happens during cell division. In fact, it's the very first step of cell division. 
So over here on the left-hand side of this diagram is a cell showing two simple chromosomes, a red and a blue one, just so you can tell them apart. This is the normal cell. When, whatever chemical signal comes in and says, okay, time to reproduce, the first thing it does is play that zipper trick and make two perfect copies of the long DNA strands that make up each of these chromosomes. I now have a double load of genetic information that triggers another cellular mechanism to come into play that gets these long strings that come out, they're actually long protein strings, that begin to reach in and pull apart the two pieces. And because they're very specifically coded, to pull apart each of the chromosomes, you get one pair of the red and blue chromosomes go to the top half, the other pair go down to the blue half, cut the chromosomes in half, and then when you finally pinch off the cell, you get two perfect copies of the cell, and then those go on to do their replication trick thereafter. So the DNA resides down in these chromosomes, and each chromosome, therefore, is copied exactly by this process. Each daughter cell that comes off of this inherits an exact copy of the DNA instructions, and those DNA instructions then have all the information coded necessary for that cell to function. How to make the proteins and enzymes and structural bits that the cell needs to, to work, to live. If those instructions were damaged in such a way that the cell ceased to function, heredity stops because the cell dies before it can reproduce and split again. So it's a very important process here. The fact that DNA can replicate itself is basically the, the genetic basis of all reproduction whether it's reproduction by fissioning of cells, like shown perhaps for a simple bacterium, budding off like a fungus or various types of sporing bodies like yeast, or sexual reproduction in which now, in which the reproduction occurs, is all of our cells know how to do this division trick to grow and develop. Remember, growth and development was one of the requirements for life. But what sexual reproduction does is adds an extra wrinkle to it. It brings in half of the genetic material needed for the organism from one parent, the other half from the other, the splitting off process works in such a way that you reassemble the two and you actually get a genetic code, but you mix genetic instructions from the, parent, from the mother and genetic instructions from the father. And you end up with an offspring, which is actually a combination of the two, which enhances this, I, this way of mixing heredity and passing it down from generation to generation. So that's the structure of DNA. Now, RNA is often left out in the cold because it's not quite as sexy in terms of its chemistry, at least at first sight, until people began looking at what is all this RNA actually doing. It's not just a half a DNA. It turns out to have a tremendous amount of structure. In fact, RNA is really one of the most functional chemicals, compounds, within every single cell. It's got a different backbone structure. It basically uses a ribose structure and these same little phosphate linkages down between them. Each of those Ribose sugars bind to one of four base pairs. Adenine, cytosine, and guanine are, of course, brought back in from DNA. They're the same. And then uracil is, in the, is the stand-in for thymine. RNA plays many roles within the cell, but there are three main roles that are most important. Number one is, it actually is the agency by which those instructions that are coded in the DNA are actually copied and transferred somewhere to do something useful. Right? If the code is sit there stuck locked in the DNA, it's not very interesting unless you have some way to read that code out. So the so-called messenger RNA or mRNA is the RNA created that reads the code and then carries that code string out into the cell to the place where proteins are synthesized. It's the messenger. It communicates the, the coding genetic information from the DNA and the nucleus out to where the proteins are actually going to get made. A second form of DNA called transfer DNA, 
or tDNA, is a different strand which is basically able to go out and grab amino acids that happen to be inside the living cell and bring them down to the uh, construction site, to the synthesis site. Because remember, all the codes along the, the, the spine of an RNA or a DNA code to bind to certain amino acids. So if you've got a whole bunch of amino acids just kind of grooving around out inside the cell plasm, how do you get them down where you need them in the order that you need them? And the answer is there are little strands of RNA which basically go out and they kind of go around collecting all the little goodies until they're full and then they drag them down into the synthesis site. Finally, once you get the messenger down there into the synthesis site, that's got the instructions. The transfer RNA basically is the... Um, material supply crew, it brings down the amino acids you need, and then the construction crew goes to work the ribose, ribose RMA, ribosome RMA, RNA, or rRNA, catalyzes the actual assembly of the protein. So the messenger lays down there, the transfer RNA brings it in, and then the ribosomal RNA does the actual construction and pops off the protein. So it's very, very complicated looking machinery, but it all hangs together pretty good within the cell. So the basic picture, the cartoon that you get is the DNA is up here. You bring in and you do what's called RNA transcription. The messenger RNA basically copies that subset of instructions it needs from the long book of the DNA, carries them out of the nucleus once the mature messenger RNA has the complete set of instructions it needs for coding for an enzyme, for example, that, that functions some way in the cell takes them out of the cell nucleus, out into the ribosomes. These are the places where proteins are synthesized within cells. It's now got standing there with the blueprint. The process of translation that occurs, the transfer RNA, gather up the amino acids floating around inside the cell, transported into the cell with the nutrients and things like that. If you think about the food you eat, a lot of the contents of healthy food are amino acids or proteins which carry amino acids, which can then be broken down into components to be used to construct something other protein. So those transfer RNAs drag various amino acids that they need down into the ribosome for construction, and then there's a ribosomal RNA that's waiting down there. It's the construction crew, takes out the blueprint from the messenger RNA, takes the raw materials being brought in from the transfer RNA, and then stitches them together into the protein. And then pops the protein off, the protein's this long strand, and then the protein does something that drives biophysicists absolutely nuts. It folds up into some three-dimensional shape. Very, very complicated, but the folding up is what then makes the protein functional. So that's the process. That's how it works. It's amazingly cool stuff. So, I mentioned before, however, that... I made, a, I made a misstatement. I said that the DNA makes a perfect copy of itself, and the RNA, when it transcribes, makes a perfect copy of those instructions. It's not perfect, and it's a good thing it's not perfect, because, in fact, this is what drives evolution and change. If DNA replication and RNA transcription were absolutely perfect, life would be boring mats of methanogenic bacteria on the Earth, because they would have no way to evolve and change shape, change form. It's no way that we know, understand of to do that easily. Turns out there are copying errors either during replication or transcription that make permanent changes in those sequences. I'm going to give you an example here, and rather using, than using ACTG over and over again, which is unreadable, I'm going to give you an example. I made up a, I stole this from a biology website in Manchester. It was a really good example of transcription. 
Let's imagine that we have in the English language, I make up a sentence made up of only three-letter words. And the rule for the sentence is you can only use three-letter words. No two, no four, no one, nothing. Just three. So we'll make up, the big dog bit the red fox. Okay, that's a nice sentence. It makes sense to you. It's an instruction, or it's a description. Yes, the big dog over there bit the red fox. So all that contains coherent information. Well, let's say I went in and decided to treat each of these letters just like it's a base in a three-letter genetic word. And I decide to replace the B with a Q. Then the base replacement mutation in here says the big dog kit the red fox. So there's sort of some sense. The big dog did something to the red fox, but kit is not a word in the English language. So all of a sudden, by making one change in one base pair in this little message, I've made up a slight bit of nonsense. There's a little bit of sense hiding there, but a little bit of nonsense has crept in. Now, we have to play the rule. It has to be three words. So what if I inserted a base? So let's go between the D and the O here in dog and insert an R. Then the sentence reads, the big dro gibby thicker if the fricks. One small change shifted the whole thing down, and since you have to read in contiguous threes, it made complete nonsense of the string downstream of the change. That's a huge mutation in the string. And you can imagine that a string to build proteins could be thousands of amino acids long. Another way you can do it is drop a letter. So let's take the O and drop the O out of dog. The big dig up ick her edif ox. Again, one small change, and the only sense is the big. And the rest of the string is completely blown away. One small mutation makes a tremendous amount of damage downstream. We can even play the word here where I don't play it with single base pairs, but I insert an entire word, if you will, an entire instruction for a single amino acid. So I insert the new word, XYZ, which I've coded in red. The big dog bit Xs the red fox. That's for putting the word in between two words. So I still preserve the big dog bit and the red fox on the other side, but I've blown away this piece here but only a small bit of damage. If I put it in between, so I do the insertion not in between the word bit and the, but put it in between the B and the I and the word bit, then I get the big dog bit the red fox. So I've got two sort of nonsense words as opposed to one nonsense word in there, but there's sense on either side. Now if we quit playing English word games with this, let's say that this is a sequence of codons which is try to build some protein. That looks pretty devastating, but it might be, so does this, and so does this. But it might be, remember, a protein folds up into an enzyme. Not all of the protein is functional. Remember how that, there's that cartoon I showed a couple days ago. What enzymes do is they take two pieces of chemicals together, give them a place to lower the energy for the chemical reaction to occur, and then pop them off. So the parts that look like little keys, little locks that keys can fit into are called the functional sites in the proteins. Those might be very specific limited places. The rest of the protein that isn't part of those functional active sites is structure. They're there to allow the protein to fold up into a certain way to put those functional sites in the exact shape they need to fit into the enzyme structure. So let's say, for example, in this mythical gene I've got going here that Big dog and red fox are the two functional groups for the enzyme. Well, in this case, big dog and red fox, that kit is just a bit of structure, might be benign. And the, the protein might be a little wacky looking, but it will still function.
In this case, the base deletion and base insertion, I blow away red fox, which is the functional group, and that functional group never gets formed, and I only have one half, that protein won't function as an enzyme. It just simply won't work anymore. And it won't perhaps do any damage, but certainly won't do anything at all. Word insertion, same deal. I put in this word, it looks dramatic, but I've kept the functional groups intact. What might change is it might be if there's a big enough insertion here, it might affect the structure and the functional site's in the wrong place and the protein will no longer function. So the severity of a change kind of depends. For example, it might be that in this particular protein, the big here is the base word and further down everything's fine. That's the only functional group then I've just basically messed with the structure a bit. Sometimes I completely whack the structure and the protein fails to function. If enough proteins fail to function, the cell ceases to function. So the point is this. Mutations, you cannot predict that mutations are necessarily bad. They may in fact be completely benign. Or maybe what they do is they just slightly tweak things a little bit. So they make slight variation in the function of the cell. One particular bit of protein chemistry goes a little slower or a little faster in response to the change in the instructions. It introduces genetic variation, both variation in the instruction set and variation in the functioning of the cell built based on that functional set. This is the basis of mutation. What mutations are, strictly speaking, is not you know, a person suddenly sprouting an ear in the middle of their forehead. That's not a mutation, that's just weird. Mutations specifically are changes in the DNA's instructions for the organism. And if you understand something about developmental biology, you realize that there is no mutation that will make an ear sprout in the middle of a forehead. But what mutations do do, and I've just got a little illustration here just for, for variety's sake, of the, all the different ways in which mutations can occur, and this is just a subset of those. Some mutations basically have no effect. They might occur at the end of a coding sequence, or they might be hidden somewhere in a, um, in a, in a structural member that doesn't have any effect on the, on the function of the protein. Remember, some of those um, amino acids only coded on the first two letters, CC or TT or something like that. So if I can change the third letter, I can freely change among the four letters in the, in the end of that third word. Still makes a cytosine or whatever the necessary thing is. That's what's called a silent mutation doesn't have any effect, the protein pops off exactly the same as before. Or maybe something happens in a non-coding sequence, who cares that sequence isn't coding for anything, isn't making any proteins, you can mutate it to your heart's content. Some of them make very subtle changes in an organism. For example, differences and variations in human eye color come down to mutations on specific genes on the human genome. You're Suddenly a kid shows up hazel-eyed. Why? Because there's a little mutation in there that flips in the function of a particular gene that codes for a particular type of pigmentation that goes in eyes. So we get very subtle changes, but really doesn't functionally change the operation of the organism. Where these get interesting, where functional changes and mutations become interesting, is when they do make big functional changes in the organism. For example, I've got a bacterium which has basically bacteria are chemical factories and they make uh, particular toxins, for example. They make particular chemicals that come out of them. They make big proteins. I can go in with the techniques of, of recombinant DNA and make a fake mutation. I can stick a codon into its DNA to make other proteins. Proteins I might want to use for something when I harvest those bacteria. 
So what I've done is I've changed the bacterial function. Naturally occurring uh, functions can occur as well. Some of those functions, some of those mutations could be extremely harmful. For example, the certain mutations in the human genome turn into cancer or certain various genetic diseases. They sufficiently alter the cell function that the cells go nuts. That's one of the possible mechanisms of cancer. Or they cause cells to malfunction in certain ways. Sickle cell anemia, for example, changes the shape of hemoglobin. That causes a cellular malfunction, which can cause a disease in human beings. It's caused by the change of one gene, one amino acid, which changes the shape that the hemoglobin cell forms into. There's no point in reading this. This is just basically showing you that same table of the 64 plausible codons. These various arrows here, green and red, show you different diseases caused by different types of errors in, or mutations within the human genome. For example, sickle cell anemia is caused by a change in glutamic acid to valanine uh, here. One of these changes between alanine and, and uh, threonine is responsible for prostate cancer. Another one's responsible for a prevalence for colorectal cancer. There's various other nasty diseases and syndromes up here you don't want to get that simply have to do with changes in the machinery of your cells, changing the function of those cells and giving rise to the genetic disease. The important thing we want to carry away from it is this. Mutations are the source of the genetic variations that are crucial for evolution. Once a mutation occurs, if the cell survives that mutation, if it doesn't kill it and doesn't prevent its ability to reproduce itself, that mutation is going to get passed on to all the children and all the children's children and children's children forever and ever through that cell line. That's the basis of heredity. You've passed down a trait. That trait might be to make cells in a slightly funny shape or make green-eyed children instead of hazel-eyed children. Now, it turns out if this, so for example, here's a moss rose, which normally does yellow, but there's been a mutation. Same organism, it's the same plant, all of a sudden turn those flowers orange. That's an actual genetic mutation. It's a change on a couple of base pairs to do that. Once, if the mutation occurs as damaging, for example, damaging enough, the organism will die before it can reproduce, and that mutation will not be passed into the population. But what if the mutation confers an adaptive advantage? It makes you more less susceptible to cold, makes you, as a bacterium, um, immune to certain types of antibiotics, then when your environment begins to stress your system, natural selection will take that mutation, which is only a slight variation in the genetic code, and begin to amplify it. It will mean that you're more likely to survive and reproduce if you have that mutation. After a few hundred or thousand generations, the mutation becomes the norm and we've actually changed from one type of organism into another. Make that change big enough, you have an event called speciation. Yes? What's uh, natural selection? Natural selection is basically the effect in Darwinian evolution, for example, is an example of natural, natural selection. Basically, an organism comes under a natural exterior stress of some kind. Change in temperature, change in weather, appearance of a predator. And if you have inside of that organism a genetic tendency to be able to survive that pressure, compared to others of your population, then that you will be able to reproduce and pass that trait down to your children who will also survive that pressure to reproduce and and go on. But if you can't survive it, your your line will be stopped and so you begin to amplify. It's similar to uh, uh, 
similar to the effect of artificial selection, which is where like you breed plants or animals for certain traits. You say, oh, I like white horses, so I'm not going to let all the black horses breed. So I'm going to take those over there and do what we do to horses to keep them from breeding and only breed the white horses. 10 or 20 generations down the line, I have a pure breed of white horses. Well, this is nature acting upon that for the, through the action of the environment. The other way in which mutations can be amplified through a population is through this, a much more uh, complicated process called genetic drift. This is the fact that if you look in any population, remember, evolution works on population, not on individuals. There's going to be a frequency of variations. It's kind of like a grade curve for very genetic variations. Some are more common than others. Okay? You basically, if you looked inside the cells in this room, we're all human beings. We all share the same basic 3 billion base pairs. But there are minor variations in those sets of base pairs. That's why we all look very similar, but there are slight differences. The closer you get in relationship, biological and genetic relationship, the more you look like someone or the more you share things. So, for example, all my siblings and I kind of look alike. You can spot when my brother comes to town. He looks like a slightly hairier version of me. Okay? But he has a slight genetic variation that he has a full beard. Me, I couldn't raise a beard to save my life. Okay? For example, some families or some ethnic groups which have been breeding among each other for hundreds and thousands of years carry within them genetic diseases that are actually propagated through their heredity. Sickle cell anemia, for example, coming out of African populations, Tay-Sachs disease among the Jewish people, and so on and so forth. Families share genetic tendencies. So, for example, the women in my line of family, some of them have a tendency towards breast cancer or certainly a high risk for breast cancer going back to grandmother, great-grandmother, and so forth. My brother's wife's line, there's none of it, all the way back. Slight genetic variations actually change of a couple of genomes. Make that difference. And it's passed through the population. So there's a frequency there. But genetic drift, it turns out that some, some, some of these mutations can propagate better than others in ways that we really don't fully understand. And so genetic drift can act as a way of kind of amplifying a mutation through the system. Once the mutation becomes more frequent, if suddenly... This type of mutation becomes more frequent. That means it's more often in the population. The population reproduces and passes down that variation compared to others. So there's two basic machineries behind evolution, natural selection and genetic drift. But both of them work at the molecular level. So mutation, which we always think of mutation as bad, right? You know, mutation in monster movies makes the thing green-eyed, bug-eyed monster. But mutation is, in fact, the engine of evolution. If a organism did not mutate, it would not evolve. It would be stuck in time. So a requirement for life is storing and transmitting functional instructions, heredity. This leaves us with some questions to ponder later in the class. Does life on other world have analogs of DNA and RNA? Are there other molecules that can serve this same purpose that are not RNA and DNA? Could you build RNA and DNA out of five, six, or seven base pairs and come up with very complex genetic languages? Maybe a way of recognizing life on other worlds. Okay, I'll see you all tomorrow.